Hello, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. If you have read anything I've written, literally anything I've written in the last six years, you know how much I love the TV show, The Americans. You're saving that money to go to Europe. Well, it's going to better use What there. use? Do you know what they're using that money for? They're feeding refugees, building houses. You guys don't help anyone. We help you. We, we help you and we helped you save that money. Please do not roll your eyes at me. You can show me some respect. Paige, you started lying to us? I didn't lie. Well, you certainly don't seem to know the difference. Do you? Lie. Lie. Stop. What are you doing? Stop it. You respect Jesus, but not us. One of the most brilliant shows I've ever seen at talking about a topic that television sometimes struggles to talk about. And I don't mean international geopolitics. I don't mean espionage. I don't mean relations between the U.S. and Russia. I mean marriage. This is a show about two spies, a man and a woman, forced to get married by the KGB and then live in the D.C. metropolitan area as a normal American husband and wife who eventually fell in love and that made them worse spies. It's a very strange, very kooky premise for a show and yet it's so smart and thoughtful and heartfelt and like it never goes into the campy version of itself and that has just been an endlessly interesting and invigorating and enthralling show for me i've loved it from day one last night as this episode is being released it finally ended its run with a brilliant series finale that i won't spoil but i thought tied together the show beautifully so we've talked to some of the voices behind the show actor Matthew Reese, and then showrunners Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields. So I am talking with Matthew Reese from The Americans. Matthew, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Uh, with a TV show, like obviously when you're doing, when you're acting in anything, you know, you have to wait for it to come out and then you do the publicity cycle for it. But you've been doing this show for six years. Is it weird to know there's nothing more coming? Yes, although I won't come out of character until the DVDs are out. <laughs> is that, who said that? That was Robert Downey Jr., wasn't it? Tropic Thunder. Yeah, it is. It's been, you know, I'm sure you're tired of hearing all these things, but I can honestly say hand on heart, this job has been the kind of greatest journey for me, both personally and professionally. I've never, yeah, I've never experienced anything like this job. Right. Right. Well, I'm going to be asking you some questions about the final season. So for listeners who haven't seen the final season, tune out. We won't get to the finale until later, so we won't spoil everything. But We'll wake you up then. <laughs> we'll wake you up. This season, Philip is kind of just himself. And like in past seasons, he's been Philip, but also Philip like as Clark and Philip as all these other guises. Was that a different acting challenge for you at all? No, not necessarily because I, I felt that you know, to me, in many ways, Philip is the kind of great immigrant dream. <laughs> he came yeah. to this came to this great nation, an immigrant, and he saw how lucrative capitalism can be, and he he wanted a slice of that pie, and he went after it. To a degree, it felt like there was another persona that he had taken on, being, right, I must be this person, I must have this image. It's almost like a costume or an identity he's wearing. He's got his sharp suits and his ridiculous car and, and a kind of a cassette 
player that comes out, you know, on a first mobile phone and he starts talking like Alec Baldwin and Glenn and Gary Glenn Ross, you know, he's <laughs> yeah. kind of, there was a difference to him, I felt. There was kind of almost a zeal that he felt that he has to succeed because he's invested so much money and that if he doesn't, his son won't have an education. So he took on another character. What do you think is most real about Philip? He's obviously a guy who plays his hair. One, his hair. <laughs> like what is like his core? What's, what's the thing about him that isn't shaken, no matter what persona he's in? I approach a character with a super objective, what it is he wants in life. And then everything you do should feed into that so it can kind of give you a definite structure or through line for me it was the love of his kids and as a father i understand that you know halfway through the scene i understand it far more vehemently now but in the first episode of the first season you see him approach elizabeth which you would think is like kind of trying getting to a cage with a lion if you approach elizabeth and saying i want to defect yeah. And I think he was purely at a point where he realized there was a timeline on their lives. Mm. They had two children that he would give his life for and that he couldn't protect them. Therefore, my the super objective I chose for Philip was to see his children grow up safely in the United States. Mm-hmm. So defection was one of those things. And then everything I've kind of done since then, I thought, fed into that. So he has to be as good a spy as possible in order not to be caught, in order for him to come home every night yeah. and for his children not to be taken into care. When Paige says she wants to enter the family business, it's cataclysmic. It couldn't be the worst thing. You know, you couldn't choose anything worse for Philip. So then what he has to do is ride that way. If you can't just go, no, he has to go, how do I best keep her alive now? You know, and it, it rips him apart because the lying he does to Henry and it kind of feeds then the more he reaches out to him. So everything he did for me, was about his children. It's an interesting show, I imagine, for an actor because it's a spy show that's not, it's political, but not really. It's sort of about how, like, regardless of political belief of ideology, like, you still have these connections. You still have these people you care about, these things that you're uh, invested in. So it's interesting to me that you came at it through his kids because the relationship with Elizabeth, obviously, is like the center of the show. But that has waxed and waned in some ways. Absolutely. And you come to this series at the beginning, in a very strange place, that there are two people who are forced together and had, you know, a lot of this is based on truth, forced together, had children to kind of cement an identification and also with the purpose of trying to get children into, um, you know, the American intelligence community. That was one of the hardest things to kind of try and pitch. You try and find a a real place for that to live. So, yes, what I loved more than anything was how was this relationship going to, Uh, unfold because they did that very, Joe did that very clever thing in the pilot where he went, here are two people who were forced together, but he has fallen in love with her, but now he's going to tell her the most disturbing thing she could ever hear is that he wants to defect. Mm -hmm. So I was like, wow, you just show the audience the time bomb. Now let's see how it unfolds. Yeah. Uh, And I know Carrie and I have both said, you know, it was a real, I thought it was a real kind of metaphor for marriage or long-term relationships in that the 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 spy element was just a kind of magnifying glass as to what you know uh, uh, being in a relationship is of dealing with envy and jealousy and everything else. Yeah, yeah. You look back at that first episode, a lot of it came back, but the defection idea never did. Did you did you feel it might, and you were like, you know, I, I was surprised that it didn't. I uh, yes, and I I did want it. I did want it to, and I remember just kind of talking to Joe about it in the second season, I think Joe and Joel and. I don't know, then lunch probably happened and we forgot about it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, for, for Philip, a kind of 
there's always something. <laughs> there's always something else. To, like to me, the the defection thing was always in my mind during those six years. But really, Philip's always dealing with something else. That's usually life or death. Always in drama school, you're always told about life or death, life or death situations, like where you pit the stakes. And in this job, you actually pitted them at life and death, yeah. literally. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that I've talked with Joe and Joel about is. I was trying to get them to be like, is Philip playing Stan in essence? And they were like, no, he's like, maybe he started out pretending to be his friend, but now they're actually friends. And like that started out as a fake marriage. But even if Philip and Elizabeth didn't love each other, you know, living together for 20 years, you have a marriage in essence. That's obviously, obviously spying, pretending to be something you're not. There's that overlap with acting. Have you like kind of felt that, uh, that connection to that side of the profession? No, not really. If, if anything, I kind of thought, oh, God, I could never be a spy. <laughs> uh, I, in fact, I thought that often. Yeah. Um, there were a number of elements, you know, the, the kind of constant lying. I remember talking to Joe about, you know, the disguises and whether you should have a limp and a lisp and a different accent. And he's like, kind of, no, because when you're lying, you keep it as close to the truth as possible. Mm. But the kind of constant pressure of lying, knowing that it has cataclysmic uh, effects, it kind of... I don't think I could have handled that pressure. And the other thing, strangely enough, when we were doing Counter Surveillance um, at the beginning of season one and Joe was showing showing us how, you know, you counter surveil someone, I thought, oh, well, we'll be amazing at this because as actors, what you do is ignore a camera your entire life, but are just incredibly aware of it your entire life. So that's exactly what we do. But I was actually terrible at counter surveillance. (laughs) I kind of was always just staring at people, trying to do my shoelaces as if I was nonchalantly going about my business. So the short answer to your question is no, I think I didn't find any real crossovers. It's very, you know, the switch. We get that question often, they go, do you find it hard to switch off at the end of the day? I always want to say, I find it hard to switch on at the beginning of the day, let alone switch off. So, you know, that's not a problem. The switch off is not a problem for me. It can be between action and cut. That sort of leads into what I was going to ask next, which is, especially in the fifth season, but somewhat throughout Philip, his physicality is he becomes more and more of a crumpled tissue mm. basically as the mm. weight of the world is on him. And I'm, I'm assuming that you were not responsible for a long string of murders. So you don't have that weighing on you, but like. I have a long string of kind of, you know, murderous performances, <laughs> butchered characters that still weigh on me. My Romeo and the Royal Shakespeare Company still kind of weighs heavily on me. And I know that for a lot of actors, it's all intuitive. You know, a lot of it is intuitive, I should say. But like, how did you find that physicality? Like, where was the place you went to get to that, that crumpled tissue? I mean, it's kind of, that was easy for me. If you just droop your shoulders and you pretend like you're a bit tired or, you know, <laughs> you're carrying the weight of the world or you look at Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh, any of those will kind of give you crumpled fill mm. very, very quickly. You know, you just let your posture go. Mm. And you try not to be too obvious about it. And that's about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just... I'm, not, I'm nothing more than a, a mime. Did you have a feeling that there were particular moments when that got more overbearing for him over the course of the series, when he got more and more weighed down by what he was asked to do? Yes, and, and you know, there are times when you kind of, you find yourself almost doubled over. Mm-hmm. We go, okay, maybe this is a bit too much. Mm-hmm. The good and the bad thing is, at times, knowing how to how to kind of ride out an arc of 13 episodes and not, you know, shoot you out too early. You've done some direction on the series as well, and you've directed some great episodes. How has that informed your performance, and how has performing informed how you direct? 
I think directors can learn from actors that, you know, there's little there's little magic. It doesn't need the reverence that we sometimes pretend that it does. Mm. We don't need the time or a quiet space. You just need a kick up the ass. You know, as an actor, I kind of <laughs> sometimes we just want to go, I know how the cogs turn, so just get on with it. <laughs> because I want to make my day and I've got an hour to finish the scene. And why, the reason why you've told me why you wouldn't stand by the window is ludicrous. Um <laughs> So, and I think, oh, I think all actors should direct just so they can feel what it is to try and shoot an hour of television in seven days, which is nigh on impossible when you have all, you know, so many scenes in 12 hours and it's raining and, and the crew's going, what, what do we do now? You kind of just want to go, I just need the actors to hurry up and I'll be <laughs> fine. I need, I need the actors to get out of their trailers or off their mobile phones or cell phones, as they yeah. say here. So the way it's changed my acting is I tend to take less gaps because you're sometimes sat in an editing suite watching an actor act and you go, oh, just finish the line for the love of God. I don't want to cut away and cut back. So now I tend to just say the entire <laughs> entire line relatively quickly. I've taken up my own, I edit myself, I take up my own pauses. The episode you directed in, in season four, uh, The Magic of David David Copperfield, yeah. opens with this great wordless sequence. Yeah. And this final season has so many wordless sequences yeah. where it's just you and Carrie staring at each other, you know, like Stan just watching what's going on. When you're doing those scenes and you don't have lines, like like what's the what's the challenge of that for an actor or for a director? The challenge for the for the actor, I think, is kind of discipline when they take away one of your greatest forms of communication there's a tendency or or a panic or an insecurity to do more with the other forms and you don't need to. You just have to remain true and honest in the, in the moment. And as a director, sometimes the hard thing is is directing that, is to go asking the actor to trust himself more about what he can convey with his face and that he doesn't need to be doing as much as they think they do. I was on set for the second episode of this season, which you directed, and I watched you rehearse basically a scene with Carrie and Margot. Uh, they were sitting at a table talking about something, uh, talking about what would happen to Paige if Carrie yeah. died, or if, uh, if Elizabeth died. They went through it and they just kind of, you know, gave it gave a very rough reading. And then you said, okay, I think emphasis should be here. Emphasis should be here. And then you filmed. And I they were didn't just, say emphasis. Please, you know God, I mean. don't you know tell what I mean. But I like said. you were like, I think this is what, okay. You were like, I think this is what's going on here. I think this is what's going right. on here. And then you hit set action and they just hit everything yeah. right on like yeah. you'd expect from the show. Yeah. When you're this deep into a show, do you guys need to be directed? You know? No. Yeah. This is a quick short answer. No. Neither do those two. And and God, I would have if I'd have told Margomande when to emphasize a word, I wouldn't have a <laughs> pair of testicles at this moment. At, at this stage, certainly, certainly not. They were so, you know, deeply entrenched as to who they were playing and how, you know, how it was unfolding. It takes very little. The the kind of hard element is when new directors come in and kind of go, This is what you should do. Yeah. <laughs> this is what you should do. <laughs> so no, you yeah, that's all. And more often than not, in the Americans, there was no time to rehearse. You kind of blocked for camera, really. And then you rehearsed in your first take. And there was never any, when I was directing, there was never a time where I was, when it was so wildly off as to what I thought, or more specifically what Joe and Joel wanted, you know, from the tone meetings, as to what they wanted in that scene. It was never like a moment where like, oh my God, how do I 180 what they're trying to do? You very, very fine-tuned things. Were there times over the course of the seasons when Joe and Joel would Turn out a script and you'd be like, I don't know that Philip would do this. Did you ever have those conversations? Not this season. <laughs> there, were, there were scripts that came out when I said, do I have to do this? <laughs> do I have to sleep with Kimmy? Um, there were those kind of moments, which is, you know, in 
fantastically unprofessional of me because <laughs> uh, I like to think that, you know, I kind of, oh, yes, an actor must do everything. And then that happened. I was like, oh, gross, do I have to do that? But dramaturgically, that was a great storyline as to build a conflict in Philip where he has a girl the same age as his daughter that he has to kind of manipulate. I'm from a kind of school of thought that you kind of honour the script, that it's not up to us to change it, mm. and that it, what your job is to justify what is there. And he, you know, as wild as those moments are when you go, God, I don't know how... What you have to do is kind of build the mental road as to how your character got there in order to justify, and then hopefully that then it pays off in a kind of domino effect. So I'm always of the opinion that, <laughs> yeah, I say this, and I'm sure there are n- numerous writers somewhere going, liar, <laughs> um, <laughs> that you have to kind of, you have to honour and serve. One, and one of the things I think imagine makes it easy is you guys and the Americans all seem to have like a real trust with each other mm. of like, you're not going to uh, screw this up in essence. Did you feel that right away or did that take time to develop the cast, the writers, the directors? Well, that, that's been my ethos since I was born, which is just try, don't, try not to screw this up. That's basically <laughs> how I've lived my life, both professionally and personally. But no, you know, Joel has talked a lot, but there's this weird little alchemy between us, I think, as kind of actors and writers. And, you know, they just write it and we just say it and it kind of comes out how they envisioned it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you have those jobs where the planets align a bit and we certainly had that with this one. So one of the, the other things I, I kind of wanted to, to talk about was in having this conversation with you, you obviously have like all the acting drama school theory and knowledge. Like, you know, all that stuff, but you're also kind of like, you're, you sort of write it off as pretentious or silly or fun or whatever. Like, how did you sort of develop that? Like, okay, I know what I'm doing, but also I don't want to be too serious about it. I'm not quite sure. I, I always remember reading about Richard Burton, who kind of was similar in his attitude in that I think what you have to do is work incredibly hard at it so you can throw it away, so you have it in your back pocket. And and it sometimes sits in a strange place for me. I sometimes get very embarrassed by what I do for a living and then that kind of incurs the wrath of other actors. But it's just my own personal thing about dressing up for a living <laughs> that I find myself going, I'm not, oh, God, you know, I'm not a spy. Why am I trying to tiptoeing around with a gun? <laughs> I don't know. I've I've always had that dilemma about like, this this chosen profession. What was the thing about Philip you struggled the most to find or to connect with as you were building the character in the early days? Uh, I know I've I've said this a couple of times in various press outlets, but it was the kind of the landing of Philip in a real place, whereby you know bizarrely so much of this is based on truth, yet. It's fantastical in its in its execution that you have these people by night do one thing and by day another. So to kind of land him in a real place, a credible place where someone would look at him and go, yeah, I can I can believe that he is a travel agent, but also he could kill those people. And he kind of has fallen for his partner of 20 years. And it was such an ask of the audience to kind of come with you on this journey that my hope was that I could land Philip in a credible, real place with boots on the ground. You make you go, oh, yeah, I, I believe that because there were a number of elements that could have been just so far off. Mm, mm. So it wasn't the line dancing? That was my Waterloo. <laughs> Truly my Waterloo. Really? Oh, really? my God. <laughs> I very lazily skim through the script, kind of look at it, where it says exterior night <laughs> so I can go, oh. <laughs> but when I saw <laughs> country bar lined, I was like, this is worse than sleeping with Kimmy. <laughs> they just got to a point where 
I was just being screamed at by the, the director kind of going, just smile when, <laughs> when I was dancing. I was like, I can't, I can't do it. Chris Long, uh, producer, director, made me laugh a lot. Just literally shouting, smile, Welsh <laughs> oaf. So you won't be taking a musical next? Never in a month of Sundays. <laughs> Were there questions you had about like, the spy craft about like the research about the stuff that the writers have obviously thought a lot about. Did you no, have questions like that? Yeah, we did. Have, did have a lot of questions, and we had an illegal. They didn't call them spies; called them illegals. Jack Barsky, have you heard of Jack Barsky? Mm-hmm. Oh, so he was Philip. He had exactly the same life. Came except he didn't come with a partner. They didn't have a handler, but everything else was just. He came to set in season three or four, and he was in it as an extra. And I plagued him with questions. Mm-hmm. And the simple answer is: you live your life like an American citizen. Mm-hmm. But I was like, well, when were, when were the feds onto you? And he goes, kind of day one when I landed and took assumed the identity of a dead boy. And I was like, oh, you know, this is pre-computers where something went ping on a, you know, social security number. Yeah. You know, I think it was paper, paper trails then. But even then they were like, hang on, this kid died when he was eight. Who's this guy? But apart from that, everything else was done as an American citizen. Did you have a favorite spy persona over the years or favorite like spy mission to put quotes around it yeah i kind of had a favorite sky disguise which was um i called him fernando i gave him a spanish alter ego that he kind of had a long hair and a mustache and a little soul glow patch on his chin and i made him i gave him a number of things like he was a flamenco dancer from madrid who became an assassin and he spoke like buzz lightyear when he stuck on spanish mode um <laughs> so yeah, he was my favorite and then i had another one called gordo who kind of sp- sold weed and was a ski guide. Those are just backstories I gave them. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to do some some very brief finale spoilers. So if you haven't seen the finale, skip past like the next five minutes. One of the things that I'm always so fascinated by about this show is that I think people expect it to end up being really cynical and, and dark and like a lot of spy stories. And it always goes for the almost romantic place in the end. What, what about, and the, the ending of this is very much like, Maybe not everybody's going to be okay, but they're going to be together, you know? What about that appeals to you or doesn't? Who are going to be together? <laughs> well, I mean, Philip and Elizabeth are off in... In a cell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> yeah. You know, that that was the one great thing I, I liked about it. And maybe it's because it has a Russian element. But the boys, are, Joe and Joel, have always been very unsentimental about their romanticism, which I enjoy. I like mm-hmm. very much that they kind of strip it away. And it kind of makes it more potent, I think. Mm. So I was always I was always glad of the stripping away of it. Mm. There's a scene where it's basically just the four main characters in a room, you and Elizabeth and Stan and uh and Paige just talking about everything that's happened. And it seemed to me like they're like Philip, as much as he, you know, didn't like the situation, like there was a relief to not having to lie. Did you feel that? Yeah. And I and I think that's very true uh, of realized by the kind of that moment when they go, oh, my God, I'm so just sort of relieved that I don't have to keep up this farce anymore. And it's got to such a boiling point for our merry band that, you know, something, something's got to give and, and thankfully did. Do you think if the travel agency had been a success, Philip would have stayed? Oh, that's a good question. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. You Much think his connection to Elizabeth was that strong? Yes, and and everything else that came with it, really, that um, there wasn't, he didn't have an option, mm. really. I think it would have pained him more to kind of leave an, an incredibly thriving and successful business. There's so much of this final season devoted to that 
relationship with Stan. And that really all comes home to roost in that final episode. Tell me a little bit about just shooting that scene, I guess, that that big long, I think it's a whole act of the show. It's like 10 minutes long. <laughs> Tell me about the process of doing that. Did you do it in one night or? Yeah, yeah, we did. We actually did it in a day. Think so beautifully about everything. Kind of thought, you know what, you have to shoot this scene in the day. You can't do this as a night shoot mm. because you can't have four actors doing this for 12 hours from 9 p.m. to 9 a.m. So he chose specifically chose a garage that could give us night for day. Um, one of the harder elements to it was uh, the endurance of it because we're, we're so off, we're so accustomed and attuned to sprinting on the show. Everything's a sprint. You mm-hmm. kind of, your choices are quick. Your, the shooting is quick. Everything's quick. And then we were going to have 12 hours to shoot an entire scene. So kind of holding, making sure you had, uh, you know, gas in the tank for when they were on you mm-hmm. was a big thing. But then giving enough so that, you know, your fellow actors are getting it from you. It was, yeah, 12 hours doing the same scene. Now I know how film actors feel. <laughs> well, you said that the show doesn't have time for rehearsal, but that scene, there's so much going on in it. Like, was there were there conversations about it, at least about like, here's what we need to hit, here's the right beats. I'm assuming Joe and Joel were very involved in that as well. They were. Or, you know, yes and no. They kind of came down to watch the initial rehearsal and then thanks to that alchemy again, they saw it and they went, okay, good. And they, you know, then they walked. So that was great. And yes, we talked it through at length. Those kind of scenes, I always feel actors turn up with their A-game because no one wants to be the one who drops the ball. So fear is a great, you know, inspirational tool. Um, so everyone turned up with it, like kind of ready to go, ready to get their teeth in the stake. So after the first rehearsal, you kind of, Chris was like, okay, good, let's shoot. We're ready to go, shoot it. It's always the little tiny scenes that you fall apart and where, God, you're going, oh, God, I haven't thought about this. Everyone turned up knowing what they wanted to do and what needed to be done, and we went after it. And uh, finally, you mentioned earlier that your super objective for Philip was he wants his kids to be okay, and now he has no control over that as the series ends. Do you think Do you think he's optimistic about them, or do you think he's worried he failed them? I, I think he failed them. Mm. I think he's devastated by that fact. Mm. I think it would devastate any parent to to go through what he did. Mm. Uh, the kind of level of betrayal and abandonment is just overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. When he sees Paige has gotten off the train, what what do you imagine? What do you imagine going through his head? It, it, it's tough, you know. Those moments, obviously, you need those big, you know, dramatic moments. But I think in those moments, it's kind of this is one of those moments again. We go, oh God, okay, where do I land this one? Because. I think the reality of it is shock. It's like when you see someone being shot or killed or, you know, I think more often than not, it's shock. The kind of go, oh, my God. Mm. And then it's later that you'd see the process and the real pain and grief. We didn't quite have a, a scene to, in which to do that. So you as an actor, you go, okay, I, I get it. She, it's, it has to be like a monumental shock. But then I kind of have to accelerate to the place of where I go, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. So that was my concern that it resonated as an enormous shock and then quickly became catastrophic. Yeah. Well, thank you, Matthew, for your time. It's a great performance. It's a great series. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Uh, us, me. (laughs) 
My guests are Joe Weisberg, creator of The Americans. Hello, Todd. And Joel Fields, his co-showrunner on The Americans. Hi, Todd. Thanks for having us. So the people at Vox, we review The Americans together. We do a chat every week about it. And I asked, what do you guys want to know? And Libby Nelson, who's one of the people who talks to me, this tells you the kind of people I work with. She immediately yelled at me in all caps, how do they pay their taxes, Todd? Ask how they pay their taxes, how do Philip and Elizabeth pay their taxes? Same is way that Joel Fox and wants Joe to do. <laughs> they pay their taxes. Yeah? yeah. Sure, of course they do. They could get in trouble and draw attention to themselves by not paying their taxes. So they don't have – there's like not an elaborate procedure they have to use. They just can send it into the IRS. No, they have fake identities right. uh, with social security numbers and mm-hmm. they uh, run a small business and they – do their taxes. You talked with Alan Sappenwall about the travel agency and like how that operates, which I've always been fascinated by. So I thought maybe there was more to it than that. But the travel agency is like a completely separate part of their lives. Yes, it's an, an authentic business. And we tried to model this as closely as we could on how actual illegals ran their lives. And they had legitimate businesses and they were their real covers. And the p- point of the cover was to let these people live lives that would not draw attention to themselves. Right, right. So much of this show can only exist in the 80s. And I'm fascinated by that. I was watching the final episode, which I won't spoil here, and thinking how much of this would be changed by like having everybody having cell phones. And like all of it would. Have you ever thought about that aspect of the show? Oh, all yeah, the time. All the time. All the time. I mean, especially the cell phone thing. We couldn't tell any story. Because, you know, so-and-so would just call so-and-so and say, don't go or they're on you or get out of there fast. We'd have, we'd have really no show. And it's an interesting point because if you look at the illegals that were arrested in 2010, the FBI apparently was onto them for, you know, a very long time. Yeah. And probably once the FBI got suspicious of them, I, mean, we, I don't think we know the whole part of this story yet. But once they were suspicious of them, they were probably able to figure it out pretty quickly would be my guess for yeah. reasons like what you're saying. Yeah. One of the things I'm fascinated by about the final season is it keeps getting smaller. You know, you feel like this fate of the world is at hand. And and in many ways it is because there's this treaty being negotiated, the the START treaty, which is a a real life thing. But it just keeps winnowing in on these two characters at the show's center in a way that like a lot of shows wouldn't do. And I'm wondering uh, at what point did you sort of come to the realization we want to tell this final story and make it almost entirely about Philip and Elizabeth, and will they be, you know, okay is a loaded word, but you know what I mean. We had a sort of a, a, a moment when we were, we were thinking, not even a moment, we were thinking a lot about the fact that every season from the very beginning, we have all these great side characters like Martha and Nina, and then all these agents they've recruited that they're running. And these people have all, for various reasons, gone by the wayside by this final season. So the question was, are we going to invent more of them and have some stories like that to tell in this final season or not? And we realized, well, you, you don't want to create characters like that for just one season. That's never been how this show works. The way this show works is you create characters like that and they gain more and more power. And by their second or third season, they're really cooking. Well, you only have one season left. Well, the obvious solution to that is to draw in, to make it closer, to make it more the story of what the show's always been about, which is the marriage. And once we had that, then we realized, well, the obvious thing to do too then is in telling that marriage story, which we've told so much of over five seasons. But the one thing we really haven't done is turn them against each other. And we're not going to do it in a Mr. and Mrs. Smith way, but we're going to do it in an American's way. And then this story revealed itself that you've watched this season. Like it's so zeroed in on these key relationships, like uh, Philip and Stan is a big part of the season. Elizabeth and Paige is a big part of the season. When you started, sat down to write, were you like, here are the relationships we really want to pay off and here are the ones that 
I don't want to say you don't have to pay off, but the ones that we feel a little more comfortable leaving ambiguous in some ways. I don't think we really did. I, I think the, the truth is there didn't have to be a decision made about those things because the way the story had been constructed, there was an inevitability to them for us. The story naturally wanted to explore that marriage and it needed to explore uh, the, the dynamic with Paige and it needed to explore where things would go with Henry and certainly – you couldn't do the end of the Americans without figuring out what the emotional end game was for Stan with his best friend and his neighbors. So all of those things were inevitable. I don't think we could have sat down and made other choices had we thought about it that way. Let me let me reframe it as what were things you felt like, yes, we need to pay this off. Here's an obvious example. If I feel like if I had gotten to the end of the show and Stan still didn't know, I would feel kind of cheated. So like that's an obvious thing you need to pay off. But what were some less obvious things you knew you wanted to get to, not an answer, but uh, some closure on. I'll give you a little one that actually we never thought we owed until we started writing the season, which was Philip's final scene with Stavos. Mm. And the chance to reveal in a series that on some level is so much about identity and trust and integrity, the chance to reveal that Stavos, he didn't know every detail of what was going on. He certainly didn't know that they were deep cover Soviet spies, but he knew something was amiss. He was a guy who wasn't going to say anything despite what happened. That was a, a a wonderful thing for us to find along the way. It also revealed a lot about Philip and, and helped push him in the right directions towards the end. My dream spinoff is uh, called Better Summon Stavos. And <laughs> yes, it's just his life in parallel in the front of the travel agency. And like they're always in back, closed away. I would watch that. He, start, he starts Expedia. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I think is interesting about the show is there's sort of this temptation to think you guys are going to go for the cynical or the dark. And you never do. You do go for dark. But the show has kind of a romanticism to it a very frank romanticism in some ways. Uh, and that's born through in the final season, which is largely about, is this marriage going to be okay? Where do you think that came from in your conception of the show? I mean, do you know us well enough to recognize that we are not cynical people? <laughs> I we do, are, yeah. We are not cynical people. I think it goes with the genre, though. I think people think of spy stories as having a sort of brooding cynicism to yeah. them. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, even even when I think about you know, my experiences at the CIA and how I feel about espionage, I think of it as espionage itself is deeply dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. I think it doesn't work in a lot of ways. I have a lot of issues with how it's carried out, but I don't think of myself as cynical about it. I think, wow, that should, that should be done differently. Wouldn't it be great if that could be fixed? Probably because I'm not a cynical person, so I don't see it cynically. And a lot of the idea of, of the, of the show was to try to present a more, you know, realistic approach to espionage and sort of break away from all those genre ideas about it. When you constructed this final season, it's based around like this very obvious real historical event that you're inventing secret history to go around. Tell me about like the limits you set for yourself and like how much Elizabeth, Philip, Claudia, et cetera, could affect the actual course of history. You know, it's funny. I, I think our, we had pretty strict rules for ourselves in terms of how we constructed secret history on the show. And uh, the key thing was that the history remained secret. So as long as we could have the real public history remain as it was, we could tell pretty much any secret story about how our characters got involved and pushed things one way or the other. Now, you know, w we would take dramatic license. So I'm sure if you went back, uh, you probably couldn't find uh, someone who was shot that day 
outside of a government building in front of a couple Soviet diplomats. But that seemed okay to us. Uh, you know, the truth was there there were people inside the Soviet Union trying to get rid of Gorbachev, and uh, the rest seemed like pro- plausible extrapolation around the summit. I talked to you before production on season six for a different article I wrote about series finales. And you had said that you had some version of this end in mind for five years, I think, since the start of season two. How much of that survived through? I mean, I, I guess what I'm asking is how concrete was it? I think it was wet concrete. Okay. Uh, in the sense that <laughs> the same – I'm just going with the analogy. I'm just going with Todd's analogy. I think we can make it work. It, it's all the same content and it could have gone in different molds, but it is uh, always – what it was going to be. They were escaping back to Russia. Yeah. There were times when it was one kid, both kids. There were, I think, some different versions of that. There were different versions of exactly how it would take place. Um, Maybe one of them would go back. Maybe one of them wouldn't make it. Yeah. But I'd say for for quite some time, it was the two of them. Uh, in the last couple of years, I don't think we had a, a version that, that involved bloodshed. I think even more – I mean we toyed around with a lot of versions including one of them not making it. Yeah. Which would have – it could have been bloody. But that was still – that's still the same idea. Yeah. 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 And the pilot, uh, Philip says, I want to defect. And that really never comes up again but it's always kind of hanging over the show. Uh, why did that card not come back out as you were constructing the the whole series? You know, when he originally said that, it was because he saw his family – in danger and thought they were about to get caught and saw that as a means to prevent that from happening and rescue all of them. And yes, it's true that also he already at that point had a real attraction to America and, and that was a pull on him too. But that wasn't the primary motivation. Right. The primary motivation was to, to, to save his family. So once that danger was passed, it really wasn't that likely to come up for him again. And, and not only was he committed to his wife and committed to his family and not going to do that to them. But this is an important thing about his character. Throughout everything, he always retained a level of loyalty to the Soviet Union and to the cause. And even even at his most broken and even even after he left the spy game and felt that espionage was as terrible as it was, he remained with a reasonable level of loyalty to the country he came from. So he wasn't going to defect ever just because he had become Americanized. The motivation in the pilot was a different motivation. You do always kind of toy with the idea of Philip being, quote unquote, more American. Like we see throughout this season, he's bought the nice stuff. You know, he's he's gone full capitalist in some ways with the travel agency. He likes line dancing, which is a, an American art form, if you will. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what was fun with about playing around with that side of the character in the final season? Partly, it, it just, as you said, we we tracked that all along. It just seemed a big part of who he was. And, you know, this this story always was in part a story about immigrants. And that was an, um, that was an immigrant who who took on the who assimilated you know more more fully and whose wife not not only didn't assimilate but was actively hostile so 
contrasting those two was, was was a big part of what was great about it and a great character story. But the fun of it was part of what you're saying, mm-hmm. that we could show the line dancing and and show the show the guy who enjoyed the car mm-hmm. and enjoyed that you know stereo that goes in and out of the car that that you remove and cuz cuz we all take that for granted but at least most of us as capitalists have that sort of in our blood we just without even questioning it and to have a character who didn't have it and got it just it throws a sort of different perspective on it for all of us who grew up with it mm-hmm. i'm going to uh head into full spoiler territory now because uh, I'm going to pivot to something off that. I asked Matthew this, and I, I'd love to get your take on it. If the travel agency had not cratered, do you think he still would have – if it was like thriving, if he was making <laughs> millions of dollars, would he still have been like, yep, I'm I'm leaving? That's a great question. I mean he had to leave. They, mm-hmm. they, he was caught. Right. So uh, oh, you, would he have defected, you mean? Yeah, maybe. You know? He, you know, boy, what do you think of that marriage? I think part of the power of the whole show – and as embodied by the finale is that ultimately he'll he'll do what it takes to preserve his marriage because he's he's ready to put her first. Right, right. I agree. He's out of there. What did Matthew say? Uh, Matthew said that he thought yes because, A, he was caught, but also his loyalty to Elizabeth is, yeah. you know, yeah. ultimately paramount. Thank uh, God. Thank God. He, he gets the character. <laughs> you know, but your question, Todd, <clears throat> that explains the performance. The uh, But your question actually uh, reminds me of something else. It, just to circle back to your, your travel agency, how do they pay their taxes question, there's uh, one of my favorite real stories of illegals when we were doing the research that we read was about uh, this illegal in West Germany. And he started the business and it did start to make a lot of money. And he was really proud that he was able to smuggle cash back wow. to Moscow <laughs> to support the cause on top of his spy activities. Uh, but Philip had to buy the nice car. Yeah. He had to, had to buy yeah. the, the removable stereo. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, that that scene, the confrontation scene, you said there were versions where it wasn't in the script, but it's like a full 10 minutes. So you obviously committed to it and committed to it pretty early on. Tell me about the process of writing that. It seems like something that probably took a while to get exactly right. Boy, that was a journey, that scene. It's hard to even think of a scene that we worked as hard on and rewrote as many times as that. And furthermore, we tend to have a – I don't want to make us sound bad, but we have a lot of confidence in our writing. And I would say that on that scene, we left it and let it sit there for a long time knowing we'd come back to it. And I think there were times when we were worried about if we were going to get there. Mm. I mean we we, after multiple drafts of it – still had it sitting in a place where it wasn't working. Right. It was really hard to get there because you're asking a lot of that scene. You're asking Stan to just make this major move of letting these people go. There's a huge amount that has to get accomplished just that you have to get out. The The emotional dynamics of everything that's happening between people is huge. It's a very long scene. And just the movement that takes place for all the characters involved is just is just titanic. It just felt that we were just inching along and sometimes frozen, no matter how much work we put into it. And then at least – I don't know if, Joel, if you describe this exactly the same way, although we usually are in accord on these things. But it felt that finally sort of – you know, we are always ahead on script, so we weren't really in a lot of time danger. But it just felt that finally after working and working on it, we just had a couple breakthroughs very – you know, pretty late in the game where it kind of came together. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say two other things about it. We – as Joe said, we tend to be confident about our writing, but this is a scene that we had trouble 
starting to write. I think because we knew a lot of it was on our shoulders. You talk about the finale weighing on us. I think there was also an emotional element of not wanting to write this scene because of what it represented. When we were shooting it, Noah said it was just strange to stand there with a gun pointed at Philip and Elizabeth and say, it's over. Yeah. As, as somebody who had been working on the show for six seasons, it's mm-hmm. over. And I think we had the same feeling to start writing the scene. And I remember we just couldn't do it. And we wrote, we wrote the other parts of the script and hadn't written that scene. And we were talking about what to do. And I remember saying to Joe, because we had a very thorough outline in which the scene was kind of written without dialogue, but with all of its emotional movements. And I finally said, Joe, why don't we, why don't we just sit down and write the version of the scene that's in the outline? Why don't we just create the dialogue that feels right and true based on that? And some of that actually did stay, but it went through a, a zillion iterations. And then the other thing that I think of when I think about that scene is the fact that we didn't stop rewriting it even after we shot it. And in fact, there's a chunk of that scene that in editing we took and moved because when, as beautiful as the scene was on, on set, when we, when we saw it in the cut, there was something about it that didn't feel like it had quite the right dynamic flow to it, emotional flow to it. And by moving a section of the scene, suddenly it, it all gained this clarity. It so was a piece was, that we had almost moved in script, that Noah had said you guys should move, that we like, it really, we'd come so close to moving it. Well, but yeah, that's so the great that, thing about he, editing. He actually wanted to drop it, I think. Do you want to drop it yeah. or move it? I can't no. remember. Uh, what section was that? Who knows? We don't remember anything. <laughs> I know what it was. It was when he was saying about Gennady Bistrov. It was you who killed the Bistrovs. And it, it had initially come a little bit earlier. I do want to ask about that because I, Philip does tell – I mean Philip doesn't lie uh, because he didn't kill Gennady and uh, Sophia was her name I think. He didn't kill them but he has reasonable expectation that Elizabeth did. But he does say no and like doesn't follow up on that. A, do you think Stan believes they had nothing to do with it and like – and B – why is that the one thing they hold back? Sometimes, I mean, I think when we were writing that, I, I have some vague memories of uh, writing that and us saying, here's the last lie. Here's the last lie because he had been so, tried to be so honest in that conversation. But in trying to also make it plausible that Stan could let them go, how, how could he How could he admit to that? It would just make it impossible. Also, Paige is there. I think there are two big reasons why they simply have to lie. One is, it sounds crazy to say you need to preserve your relationship with Stan Beeman, but if you know anything about Stan Beeman, <laughs> you can be honest to him about anything. But if you said, by the way, I'm just going to come out and say I'm a murderer, uh, you're not walking out of there. Uh, and similarly, Paige has had enough revelations over the course of the last few episodes, certainly in the last one, yeah. uh, that you know that relationship wouldn't survive that that either. And I, I don't think Stan believes them, but I don't think he's sure they're not telling the truth. I mean, I look at Noah's performance there and I, I see sort of what we would have dreamed of, which is the question of whether or not they're telling the truth there. I don't want to say it's irrelevant, but it's it's not possible to process it in that moment. Right, right. One of the things that I found fascinating was how you played the Stan Finds Out uh, elements of the final season because he doesn't get proof until the finale. He He figures it out earlier, I think in Harvest is the episode. But... That's just a lot of other shows would have had, you know, the last season he finds out in like episode two and he's chasing them all season long. Uh, I, I really like the way that played out. But like, why did you play it out that it's much more of a slow burn other than the fact that that's just how your show works? Well, I think for us, we wa- we wanted to play it in the way that felt most true. 
And while it might have been possible to create some sort of sudden reveal where everything got exposed to him, it would be hard to construct that without a level of coincidence that would lead to that. But uh, what interested us here is uh, the chance to allow him to know on a subconscious level before he knew on a conscious level, to wonder about it, to question it, to question himself, and then to do what he would do, which is investigate, look into it, see if he could prove it. Finally, admit to his friend and boss that he had this crazy idea and and yet not let go of it because he's a professional who also operates off his instincts. I do have to ask about Renee. Was there a version of that storyline that ended in a more conclusive place? Never? Never. Interesting. What made you... Um, I do love that the last thing, I, this is legitimately, I love this. I love that Philip tells Stan, I think your wife might be a spy <laughs> on his way out the and door. And then he says, I'm not sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but look into that. <laughs> what made that What made that a compelling story to not just develop, but also then kind of leave in a place where you're like, this is still going on in whatever universe the Americans takes place and we just don't get to see it. That's a, You know, that's a good example of what do you and don't you owe because it would seem that you owe that. But when we thought about it, we didn't think we did. In a funny way, we weren't interested in the answer. Hmm. We didn't We didn't want to know. You know, what interested us was the question. And, you know, when you see Stan have his final goodbye with her, it's such a, it's such a beautiful moment where she sort of hugs him and he kind of takes her elbow a little bit but gives her this sort of not very happy look that she doesn't notice because she doesn't know what's going on. And then if you think it through, you realize he's going to have to deal with this later and he's going to have to deal with it. And that means that means life goes on and you don't know exactly how he's going to deal with it. And it's going to be hard. Mm. And and that's just powerful. It's just powerful and it's emotional. And that seemed like the right story. The idea that both their kids stay in America and they are headed back to the Soviet Union how did you come to that decision? Because you said you had versions where both kids went out. Maybe there was a version where Paige went out with them. You know, what What was that decision? What was that conversation like? Especially, I guess, with Holly Taylor about, like, you're going to get off the train and that's going to be the last. Um, she doesn't, like, explain herself later. You know, we, we don't hear her speak again. We see her drink some vodka and that's it. So I don't think we ever had a version where both kids went with them. I think it was always both kids stay or one or, or, one or the other kid stays behind. Uh, so there was always going to be a big price to be paid by them. Hmm. I'm trying to think when this exact version presented itself. I think it was very much at the beginning of this season, wouldn't you say, Joe? Mm-hmm, I think so. Um, but we spent a lot of time figuring out the the technicalities of the train hmm. was a was a a big thing for us to figure out because it it certainly wasn't a train at the beginning. Originally, it was a Southern, but it was we had a we had a plane, we had a customs line at an airport, and then we played with uh, driving across the border in different cars. We played with one of them driving and one of them walking. So it it took a while to to get to this final version. In your but mind, you know, go ahead. Well, as I say, I think that in large part, when it, when it was just one kid, it just wasn't hard enough. It just wasn't tragic enough. The price they were paying wasn't high enough. Not that losing one kid isn't a very high price, but we wrote that. We we ran that in our heads and it wasn't hitting us hard enough and it needed to hit like a 
you know, it needed to hit with full force that you just couldn't get up afterwards. And we just, we tried that and we didn't have it. And then we'd, and then it was both kids and then we had it. You were going to say hit like a train, weren't you? <laughs> I was going to say sledgehammer. Oh, okay. <laughs> do, you, uh, do, you, do you feel like they, they do need to be punished or pay a price in some sense, karmic sense maybe? I don't know if it's about karma or if it's about them back in the Soviet Union being emotionally devastated. Um, maybe it's a little bit about karma, but I think it's more about the feeling that they are so sad and so lost and so hurt. Again, you would feel that a lot. If, but, you know, if Henry was back there and Stan was going to raise him, of course you'd feel horrible. You know, you can't even describe how horrible that is. But if somehow both kids are gone, there's a crazy way in which all those years have disappeared or been for nothing. I mean, I can't even put words to it. It's yeah. story, story karma. Well, as you look back on the whole run of the show, as you think back to those early days, writing the pilot, working on that first season, what has been the most uh, surprising thing and the most gratifying thing about getting to live with this for probably like seven or eight years in your cases? This is something that has, you know, become clear in the last few months and that we've been talking about a lot. And it's it's really the the people, the people we've worked with and, and been around and grown close to. And, uh, you know, I know I speak for both of us that, you know, we love the show very dearly and we're so proud of it. And and it's, you know, something we'll, we'll always have. But this group of people that we've worked with has been an extraordinary team and, and, and such a such a very special pleasure to go to work with every day and, and be around. And I know people say this and it sort of sounds like words, but for us, it's really this family we've been with and we're going to miss terribly. And, and, and our working relationships were very special. Everybody really was close and, and actually genuinely liked each other. And you just don't get to have a working environment like that very often. Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields, uh, they're the showrunners of The Americans and the upcoming multi-camera sitcom Better Summon Stavos <laughs> coming to ABC. No. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Thanks. Thank you. I'm the host and executive producer of I Think You're Interesting, Todd Vanderwerf. And I'm not a spy, but I'm also not not a spy. The producer of I Think You're Interesting is Bridget Armstrong. The executive producer of audio at Vox Media is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. The logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. This week's episode was recorded at the Vox Media Podcast Studios in New York, and our recording engineer was Jarrett Flynn. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. It helps us get the word out about the show. It helps us get great guests. You can email me, Todd at Vox.com, if you've got something you want to say. You can email the show at ityi.podcast, itye.podcast at vox.com. You can tweet at me at tvoti to votee. We are going to be back next week with more folks from the world of arts and entertainment, from the world of media and culture, just people I think are interesting. Until then, I, I was going to say something Russian, but like the only thing I know is das svidaniya, and I don't think that's appropriate. But das svidaniya.